Okay, this morning we're going to be looking at Esther chapter 6. And so you can turn there if you want. In chapter 5, we started that chapter seeing Esther, her maids, and Mordecai and the Jews, and Susa completing a three-day fast. It was a fast that was planned for the purpose of preparing for Esther's going before the king to plead for her people, the Jews. And she had some concern about that early on because the command was if you came when you weren't called upon, if the king didn't extend to you the royal scepter, the golden scepter, it was an automatic death sentence. So she put on her royal garb and went into the court in the area of waiting to see the king. The king sees her waiting. He extends to her the golden scepter and it spares her life and grants her access. He inquires of her, what's troubling you? And promises to her, I'll grant your request. I want to take care of the problem. And uh, she asks the king to come to the banquet that she has prepared and to bring Haman along as well. As we remember, Haman has said about and has accomplished putting out a decree that all of the people of Jewish heritage would be put to death about the end of the year. And so the king wants to please Esther. He quickly arranges for Haman to be brought so they can attend this banquet. So questions for you. What does Haman think of this arrangement of going to the banquet with the king that Esther has prepared? What's that? I didn't hear you. He doesn't want her to go? Oh, yeah, he wants her to go. He wants to rebuild her true heritage. Say again. He wants to rebuild her true heritage. Uh, Haman does? Yeah. I don't think, he doesn't know her true heritage. That will he come out. He, why does he want to go so bad? Well, he's not satisfied when it's all over, but at the time of the going, this is it. This is being a member of the cabinet invited to dine with the president tonight. Just him with the family. And so he just, he, this just lights him up. <clears throat> this is what Haman's about. How do I be important in somebody? And I'm being more somebody because I get to go to this banquet that the queen has arranged and she invited me by name. She didn't just tell the king, bring somebody along. No, bring Haman. Uh, At the banquet, what does Esther request? Another banquet. banquet. This is what I want you to do. The king is pushing on her. What do you want, Esther? Well, if it pleases the king, I want you to come back tomorrow night. Oh, and bring Haman again. And so there's going to be another banquet. And so it's a grand time. Every fun is had by all. Now, not everybody looks at this banquet in the same way, do they? Haman's looking at it like, wow, I'm getting somewhere. And Esther's looking at his presence as having the enemy to supper. But she's, she's doing what she's doing toward an end. And we don't know how much she thought it out, how much God was leading her, how much was spur of the moment uh, in terms of what she understood. We know we, know we can see God's leading, right? And the reason we're going to see a lot of God's leadership in this and planning in this and his intention and his control over the details, there's a lot that needs to happen between the banquet of chapter 5 and the banquet that will be in chapter 7. 
because we're going to look at chapter 6, which is all of the activity in between that's clearly God's hand at work. Uh, so Haman's day, we already said his day was spoiled. What spoiled his day after the banquet? Mordecai. Yeah, he sat at home and here's this Mordecai in the gate and won't bow down to me. And it's been under his skin for a while. And uh, so where does he go after he sees Mordecai? And what does he do? Well, he whines. Who does he whine to? His wife and his friends. His wife and his friends. And so here are he is with his wife and his friends. I, uh, people respond differently to disappointments and frustrations in life. Uh, he responds differently than I. T- I typically don't want to see people when when life's got me upset, disappointed. Uh, things aren't working out in a way that I'm willing to accept. I mean, am I eventually going to have to accept them? Sure. But my path to get there is, is not to gather some people around me and let them know that I'm frustrated. I tend to hole up and be quiet. But that's not Haman's style, apparently, because he gets his wife and his friends around. What's the first thing he says to them? Does he start out whining? No. He goes through all the things that ought to be that he would have expected would made him feel good about life. His sons, his accomplishments, his money, his how everything's going, his position in the palace. I mean, he's number two man in the Persian Empire. And to the point that Haman gave him the signet ring so he could go plan this destruction of the Jews. And when he gets all done, he says... I've got all this, and yet I can't be satisfied because of Haman. Mordecai. Mordecai, thank you. He's Haman because of Mordecai. Yeah, I'm working on old man brain again this morning. Uh, And his wife and the friends, they made a suggestion. What was her, I guess it was his wife's suggestion. What does she suggest? Build a tower. Build a tower. She even gives some specifics, doesn't she? How tall is it supposed to be? 50 cubits, about 75 feet. And then I didn't make much of this last week, but I want to make a little more of it this week. If you look at chapter 5, verse 14, you'll see there that uh, there's additional part of the plan, she suggests. And that part of the plan is not only have the gallows made, but in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. And then go on joyfully with the king to the banquet. So she's got it mapped out. In the morning, when you see the king say, hey, I need you to do something, please. I'm sure it's always going to start with, if it please the king. And I don't know what he's going to have to explain, but he has, he, he, he buys into, we will request of the king that Mordecai be hanged on this tall gallows. And so he... Uh, had the gallows made actually started it's not completed at this point and so that brings us to chapter 6 and uh, today I think we're just going to read the whole chapter and then go back and and work our way through some of the details so I would be looking for somebody to read chapter 6 for us if I can find someone that will do that or at least start it somebody else can pick it up 
On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found out, and it was found written how Mordecai <coughs> had told about Bigtana Big and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who had guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Who would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head the royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So, this banquet that happened the night before, <clears throat> this banquet that happened the night before, Haman is thinking, okay, everything's on this great upward trajectory. But before he can really enjoy this and go home and brag, this trajectory takes this nosedive, and he sees Mordecai. And so that just jerks the rug out from under him in every way. And then when he gets here into chapter 6, he's just going, it, it, we find out that that first banquet was the beginning of Mordecai's ascents and descents, ascents and descents, because things just don't go the way he anticipates. As a matter of fact, I think if, we, if he had made comment that was recorded, he would have said, it just gets worse and worse and worse. It's, this is the worst I could have imagined um, in a... In a little while Becky's going to be preaching what's the worst that could happen at the next women's equipping women meeting right well um, you could use this chapter to talk about it she's over in Job but what's the worst that could happen she's on the opposite side of it she's as a believer what's the worst that could happen it's going to be a great message I'm sure don't know any details this would be the negative what's the worst that could happen and that's very different than where she's going to be going but uh, from Mordecai's perspective, this just gets worse and worse and worse. And so we see here the king can't sleep. Why can't the king sleep? Because he doesn't know what Esther 
No, the king. Why can't the king sleep? Oh, he doesn't know what Esther wants. I'm sorry, I misheard yeah. you. Okay, any other comments? The reason the king can't sleep primarily is God wants to get the king's attention on a specific thing, an event that's already occurred that's going to play into this day that God has orchestrated and put together. And so when the king can't sleep, what does he ask for? Yeah, he wants to, wants to bring the chronicles, the records. I want to read about, of course he doesn't do the reading, King, this king doesn't read for himself at this time anyway. He has somebody else do some reading. And, he wants, and so he has them bring the records, and they're going to read to him. How they selected this passage, this part of his records, or anything, I don't know, except that this is the passage that God wanted to bring to his attention. I don't know it, if this was the king's normal practice when he couldn't sleep, if this is his way of counting sheep, maybe... <laughs> Maybe it was really boring. Maybe it was just his vanity exercises. Well, I can't sleep. Might as well feel good about all the wonderful things that have happened in my kingdom. Don't know. But in verse 2, we see that he, it is about Mordecai's part in exposing two men who intend to do harm to the king. There's doorkeepers. They have some sort of a plan to lay their hands on him as the words that's used here. I think it's a pretty common assumption that this is they plan to take the king and assassinate him. And in verse 23, after hearing about what Mordecai did to, to, to uncover this plot and make it known to him through Esther, he says, well, what honor or dignity was extended to Mordecai for this? And what do the servants say? Nothing. Yeah, that's probably not a comfortable moment for the servants because <coughs> that's not the kind of news you want to give the king. And you can tell in verse 4, the king's got on his mind, we're going to get this corrected right now. And so in verse 5, he asked the question, who's in the court? Do you remember the, the court? That's where Esther was waiting. And so now, who's out in the court? Haman. Haman. Now the scriptures tell us what Haman's, why Haman's in the court. Why is Haman in the court? He's going in there to get the king to agree to Mordecai, yeah, he's, he's got a plan, he's working his plan, and he, he wants to get on with it. And so um, we, we get to see the, the servants come back and say, well, Haman's out there. You know, I, th this, is, I, this is part of why I really enjoy this, is because we get to see it from kind of the whole story perspective and not just one perspective, because... Is it hard for us to anticipate how this is going to work out? I mean, we see these two converging things. The king wants to honor Mordecai, and Haman wants to get him hung today. And so uh, you can just see God's providence at work. And so we get to become a little bit anticipatory, or a lot anticipatory, at various stages of the book. This is one of them. So here's Haman there, he's, he's going to ask for this. And in verse 5, when the servants see him, the king says, Well, let him come in. So what does that tell us about the king's sleep that night? Because this was fairly immediate after he heard the story, and Haman's already in the court, so we don't know how early he got up, but he's still up. He, he couldn't sleep, so they read the story. He's still not 
retiring and getting some rest. And so it, this, is, this is happening pretty rapidly. And so Haman comes in in verse 6. And he asks Haman a question. What question does Haman get asked? What should I do for a man that dead likes me? Here he is talking to the number two man in the kingdom, and he wants, he wants a good answer, the king does. What should I do for somebody that should be honored by me? Now, what goes through Haman's mind? gotta be me who else could he want to honor more than me now this reveals um, Haman's self perception doesn't it aren't I somebody and people who want to be somebody after a while of some success and kind of move up the social ladder a bit they think they're somebody and who who else could be somebody like I'm somebody so he thinks about what he wants for himself. What does he want? What does he ask for? What, or suggest. To him, he's asking for it. From the king's perspective, it's just a suggestion on how to honor somebody. What does he ask for? King's robe. Put, bring the king's robe, one that the king has worn. Not just something that looks royal. One that really is kingly royal, royal has been worn by the king. What else? Horse the king has ridden. And a crown. Well, he doesn't ask for the crown. That's a description. I always thought he wanted the king's crown for this ride too. But when I read it, I went, that's not what it says. So then I had to research. And in that era, when the king rode a horse in a parade, often there was a crown, royal crown, placed on the horse's head. And that's really the way this reads, at least in the New American Standard. And so we don't want just a horse. We want a horse that the king has ridden in the parade style with the royal crown on the horse's head. So he's asking for a robe and a horse, and they're both very special because they are the very robe and horse that the king would wear in his most kingly moments. What's Haman trying to do here? He's making another half step to be equal with the king. I'm wearing the king's robes. I got the king's horse. It's like seeing the king when you see me. And so he's, he's just lining his cap with more feathers of grandeur. At least he thinks that's what he's doing. It doesn't work out so well. <laughs> Um, and then, then what, is, what else does he ask for? I mean, those are the two things that would be arrayed on the person. But he wants one. There's another piece to this. Somebody will come lead the horse. King doesn't even have to be a horseman. The horse is led, and there's someone proclaiming as they go. This is how the king honors someone as he desires to honor them. Thus it will be done to the man who the king desires to honor is a more correct way of saying it. And so Haman's trying to just boost his pride to feel good about it. 
And uh, there's something in the back of Haman's mind he hasn't mentioned yet. Oh, by the way, King, could, could you hang Mordecai? But he doesn't get to that yet. But so things are just moving as far as he's concerned in the right direction. Royal feast with the king and Esther. Another one coming up. I'm number two in the nation. I've got my plan out there to get rid of all the Jews. And in verse 10, the king says what? What does the king say to him? Hurry. Don't delay. Do it right now. Go out and do what? Everything you just said, you, so he's going to be the one leading the horse. (laughs) Do this for Mordecai. Now, there's nothing recorded here about Haman's reaction. There is some additional instruction from the king, though. What else does the king say about his instruction? Mordecai the Jew, that's true. Okay, here's Mordecai who has just condemned all of the Jews to death. Haman Mordecai has, yeah. Mordecai the Jew. Yeah. Um, and, 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 go ahead. Don't leave anything out. Don't, make sure you do it all. Every bit of it. Yeah, so, so, so here's Haman. We're going to talk about the Jew here in just a minute. But here's Haman. And then he's given these instructions to do this. And basically he's told, and do it very well. Don't leave anything out. And there's nothing recorded here about Haman's thoughts or response. I would think he would have a tough time keeping the emotions out of his face. But he's obviously pretty good at this. Because he's been, he's been self-controlled on revealing his thoughts all the way through this whole situation with Mordecai not doing what Haman wants done. But the other thing that's interesting is, and Bill mentioned it, he says, do it to Mordecai the Jew. And I'm, I'm, I, when I read that, I go, you know, because I've obviously read Esther much more detailed and carefully than I have in the past. I'm looking at this going, well, now that's interesting. What is the king thinking about the fact they've got paperwork out to wipe out the Jewish people through the whole kingdom? And, um, well, go back to chapter 3 for a minute. And I'm going to show you one of the possibilities about this. When... Haman comes to King Ahasuerus. Um, oh. I'm sorry, I didn't. I should have written down the verse. Verse eight. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, "There's a certain people, scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your of your kingdom." Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws, so it's not in the king's interest to let them remain. So here's Mordecai's introduction to Haman. Has he identified this certain people? Not in the words, at least in the New American Standard. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I'll put this money in the treasure, and so on and so on. And the king gives him the signet ring 
to go make the order. Now, when the order is written, the Jews are specifically called out in the order. That comes in a little later. Uh, it was written under the name of King Hasaras with the king's signet ring, which we know Mordecai, I'm sorry, Haman had that. And they were uh, sent to all the provinces to kill and annihilate all of the Jews, both young and old. Okay, so one possibility that was raised in thinking about this and looking at what some folks wrote was that maybe the king didn't know who these certain people were. If he didn't read his own edict, I mean, he gave it to Haman, go do it. So here's Haman out doing it. To me, that's a bit of a stretch. But then again, not all leaders are all that cognizant of everything that's going on under their command. And so maybe the king doesn't realize that the Jews align up with this same certain people. <coughs> the other alternative is he didn't get any sleep and he's not thinking. I don't know. Or maybe, you know, I mean, you, you could even go down a strange alternative to think about it. And that is that, well, yeah, he knows they're all going to be killed, but we're going to honor this one before we get that far. I, I, I can't get my brain to make that happen. How could the king let this man be destroyed that he's now out there honoring? So somehow the king's not making that connection. But he knows he's a Jew, which that's has some level of importance because we're going to see before we're done studying Esther, he does not know Esther's a Jew. So he doesn't know the fullness of the connection between Esther and Mordecai. But um, he says, go do this for Mordecai the Jew. Don't leave anything out and do it well. And so what does Haman do? He does it. And I would guess after these instructions well let's describe it so what does he do it says here what he did he, he put the king's robe on him he's on the king's horse and he leads him around and, he has to proclaim and he's proclaiming that and where does he do it in the square and we know from previous example this is right outside the entrance to the palace this square we saw that when <coughs> Mordecai was in uh, mourning with ashes and sackcloth he was in the square oh which was right outside the king's gate but he couldn't come into the king's gate because you couldn't be in mourning in that fashion you had to be properly dressed and groomed and so on to be in the king's gate and so um, as they work their way through this he's doing it and I'm guessing he did it very well. Go back to Esther chapter 3 again for a minute. And um, go down to verses um, 3 and 4. This is what it says. Then the king's servants, now this is after Mordecai has failed and has been unwilling to bow to, the, to uh, Haman. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they had spoken daily to him, he would not listen to them. They told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, 
for he, Mordecai, had told them that he was a Jew. So what are all the people in the king's gate? What did they want to know in chapter 3? Which was some months ago is when it originally came up. Yeah, can, Jew, can, can somebody refuse to do what the king said and honor Haman? And they told Haman, and, and they're back there, they're telling Haman because they want to see if Haman's going to do anything about it. Now who's out watching all of this? Those same people in the gate are probably close enough to see what's going on in the square and that Mordecai is there being honored by Haman. What a reversal. Haman himself is out there proclaiming this is how the king honors somebody he wants to honor. And so this goes on. It's completed. I would be really surprised if Haman didn't try to do this with a really upright manner, making it look like he really is, has hearts in it because the king ordered it. He couldn't probably afford a message to get back to the king. Well, by tone of voice, he didn't really mean it. No, he, it needed to be effective for what the king wanted to accomplish. So it's all done. Where did Mordecai go when it's all over? He went back to his post at the king's gate. He's back being the king's uh, officer in whatever role he had there. Where did Haman do? He went home mourning. There's another piece in there that's important. His head was covered. That's a sign of, of uh, maybe great mourning depending upon what he was a part of. But covering the head was a sign of subservience, a sign of, of uh, being less. And uh, he clearly, I don't know what covered meant. You know, you've, you've seen how the Jewish people, when they're praying and the, that are practicing the Jewish faith, they put the skull cap on because they need to have their head covered in front of God, showing their lesser status and, and, and uh, so on and so on. It's, it's just what God honoring in the way that they're commanded to cover their heads in God's presence, but um, he may have gone home disguised effectively, covered his head so nobody would see it was him. He was mourning. He was upset. By the way, throughout all this, what's happened to Haman's status now? Oh, yeah, I mean, he's publicly out there promoting somebody else. I mean, clearly... They're, the edge is off. And so he gets home in verse 13. Um, he tells Zeresh, his wife, and his friends, uh, looking at verse 13, and all his friends, everything that happened. But look at the next words. Because we've been saying friends all the way through. But there's at least a contingent among those friends, if not all of them, they're in a position of being counselors to Haman, uh, men who uh, give him some direction and insight. Then his wise men and Zeresh said to him, and what do they say? What do they say? 
And, and it, well, back up just a little bit. You're right on. If he's a Jew, you're not going to win. But they say this Mordecai, if Mordecai, before you have begun to fall. In other words, in front of him, you've begun to fall. They're looking at him going, you're crashing. And Mordecai is, is the one in front of whom you're doing that. It's in this conflict with Mordecai you're coming up short. It's Mordecai that's been tearing you up. It's Mordecai that wouldn't honor you. It's Mordecai that caused you to get so obsessed with it, you're going to want to go out and kill all the Jews. It's Mordecai this is a linchpin for your decline. And if he is of Jewish origin, does Haman already know he's of Jewish origin? Yes. He's even said to them, Mordecai the Jew, by title. Here's what they say. You will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Some friends they turned out to be, well, actually, they were pretty good friends. They told him the truth. But why would they say that? Because it's the truth. It is the truth. God is showing his power to them. God is showing his power to them. You remember Exodus 17? Let's go back and read it again. Exodus 17, 14 through 16. Exodus 17, 14 through 16. This is written following the time when the Amalekites came up to oppose the Jewish people as they went from Egypt in the direction of the Promised Land. And uh, God saw that they were defeated. Remember, Moses had to keep his hands up, and while his hands were up, the battle was being won. So they helped him hold his hands up because he couldn't do it on his own. Um, and they won. Let's read 14 through 16. Oops, I'm in the wrong chapter. No wonder that didn't look right. But when you're ready, somebody's got that. Go ahead and read it. 17, 14 through 16. And the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as, to, as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, The Lord has sworn, The Lord will have So what's the future of the Amalekites? They're going to be at war with the Lord forever. Yeah. They're going to, God is going to be opposed and actively warring with them from generation to generation. And we know that because God told Moses to write it in a book, right? So do you suppose this was known even outside of the Jewish clan? Clan, nation, big nation? <clears throat> and the answer apparently, to some extent, must be yes. And it's further reinforced, we're not going to go read it, but over in 1 Samuel 15 is where Agag, the king of the Amalekites, is killed by Samuel the prophet. Um, Saul was supposed to do that, didn't do it. God sent Saul out in similar manner many many years later to wipe out the Amalekites but they left a few 
the choice, animals alive, brought them back, brought the king back. And we can see that there must have been a few other survivors because Haman is a descendant of Agag, the king of the Amalekites. We've been through that. But that, that gets reinforced there that God is against the Amalekites in favor of his own called people through Abraham, the Jews. So that's what Mordecai, I'm sorry, that's what Haman is up against to the point that even his own family members know it. And they declare it to him and there's no time for reaction because what happens as soon as they make their declaration? Here come the eunuchs. The eunuchs are here. Come on, we're going to the party that is being attended by you and the king that Esther is throwing. Now, I want to back up and ask a few questions. And this comes out of, uh, Dave Wernley was kind enough to have a discussion with me after class last week. And there's an aspect of this we don't want to miss. We've been talking about seeing God's hand at work. Did we see God's hand at work in this day? I mean, how much did he rearrange things? How much did he, through the actions that he caused, Haman to go through show that Haman was being put down for what he was planning with regard to Mordecai. The very centerpiece of his hatred of the Jews is Mordecai. It's Mordecai and his family. And God made it clear that he is at work to see that this one that is hating Mordecai is put in the position of having to show Mordecai's good favor to the king by walking around and proclaiming it. <clears throat> but there's another character we're, we're leaving out. Do you think that Satan is involved in these events? Yeah, absolutely Satan's involved in these events. What is Satan doing? Well, he wants to wipe out the Jews, and that's, that's a point I really want to, want to work at. His method of getting there is uh, when people sin, who are they obeying? Satan. Satan. Is Mordecai filled with hate? So he is obeying Satan. He's a slave to Satan through his sin. And so here is Satan there fueling this on through the human nature that exists. And why would Satan be wanting to do away with the Jews? They're God's chosen people. Okay. Jesus comes through the line. Jesus comes through the line. They're God's people. Yeah, we, we need to take a look at that. And actually the place to start is our last study. Go to Genesis chapter 3. We need to trace this down through. Dave did a good job. I wasn't here to hear it all, and I've listened to some of it. I don't know if I've heard it all. I might have. But Genesis, but Dave talked to us when I was absent for a period about covenants. And I'm going to take you through some covenants, some small pieces of some covenants, but not small in importance, just not lots of words. Let's start with Genesis 3, chapter 15. And this is 
God talking to Adam and Eve following their fall into sin. And he tells them what their curses are going to be and so on. But in the midst of that, he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now he's talking to Satan in the form of the serpent. And what did God just, what's he talking about here? What's this enmity, you and the woman, your seed and her seed, bruising on the head and bruising on the heel? What are we talking about? Who is being bruised on the heel? Who is stomping the head of Satan? Christ. From Genesis chapter 3, in the initial promises slash covenant made to Adam and Eve, the Abrahamic covenant, God is already talking about the role that Jesus the Christ will play when he comes and initially gives his sacrifice, dies on the cross for sins, followed by the second coming where he actually takes his position on the throne. Uh, go over to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. This is the covenant with Abraham. This is restated numerous times, and there's even a more formal time of the covenant. But this is a time when God launches Abraham away from uh, his family to become the father of the promised people, the pro people of promise. And in verse 3, this is the end of that statement God makes to Abraham, And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What's the blessing for all the families of the earth? Salvation. Salvation through Christ. God is essentially saying, the blessing to all the earth, the dealing with the sin of mankind, is coming through your descendants, Abraham. <clears throat> Now I want to go one more place, and that's 2 Samuel 7.16. 2 Samuel 7.16. Yeah, 16. Now, God is talking to David, and there's a lot being said here, and some of it's about his son Solomon, but not all of it. And this is the part that's not about Solomon, but it's part of what we call the Davidic covenant. <clears throat> your house and your kingdom, he's saying this to David, shall endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. What did Nathan just tell David on God's behalf. The Messiah is going to come from your line because there's going to be a king on his throne forever. 
That promise was not fulfilled prior to Christ. And the full fulfillment of that even hasn't happened yet on earth because Jesus has to come claim his kingdom yet as he returns. But the promise is to David that that eternal kingdom that Christ will be on the throne is going to come through his lineage. Oh, by the way, David is clearly a Jew, right? And if we were to continue, we could look over at Isaiah 53 where it says, He bore our griefs. We could, we could see that uh, there is a... Well, go over to Isaiah 14. This is probably worth adding. Not quite out of time yet. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. Now, this requires a little bit of, of um, looking into the words to see what's really happening here. But in Isaiah chapter 14, um, we see these words beginning in verse 12. And he's, he really, the, the words are directed toward the king of Babylon, but there's symbology going on here. And this is really by the title we see in verse 12, it's, we understand it's really t toward Satan. <laughs> How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You've been cut down to the earth, you, have, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, talking to Satan, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the, amount, on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? There is a conflict that is personal going on throughout history between God and Satan. And Satan has chosen the battlefield, or he's been involved in the battlefield, of the history of mankind. And throughout that history, he has been working against God's intents and plans. Go back to Genesis 3. Who came and told Eve lies, lies to tempt her to sin? Satan. Satan, through the serpent. From the beginning of creation, or at least very nearly the beginning, from the first couple to be alive out of creation, Satan has been handily at work telling lies to the population to keep them from following the Creator God. And when we get over to Esther, we are now in the point of history that the initial covenant with, Abraham, with Adam was established, Adam and Eve, and Satan knows, knows enough about the plan that as this develops, we see the covenant with Abraham and we see the covenant with David. So the eternal kingdom that God intends to establish where there would be a descendant, a person on that throne forever, from the earthly side, he's a descendant of David, a Jew from the Abrahamic covenant. And so we get to Esther, Satan is 
using the hatred of Haman in his conflict with God to attempt to annihilate the Jews. We get rid of all the Jews. We get rid of the heritage that will see the birth of Jesus that we see through Mary and the Holy Spirit. And so that's what's going on. That's there in this story. And to me, that makes the story even more fun. God is playing, I don't know if I want to say it that way, but God certainly has a sense of irony, if you will. He is rubbing Satan's nose in it. Oh, you hate Mordecai? Here, why don't you run around and just say how wonderful he is at the direction of the king. And you are so caught up in your own pride and in your own self-importance uh, that you won't jeopardize those things to tell the king, I'm not doing that. Because what you want so much, Haman, is to be number two and even better. I mean, do you think that Haman had designs on becoming the king someday? Oh, yeah. yeah, he did. I, I can't prove that. I'm just saying, knowing human nature, you can't have a man be that up on himself and be a number two and not think about how do I become number one. Someday there will be an opportunity, and I want to be right there ready. And so God uses their sinful nature. I've got all this pride. I think I'm important. I think I'm wonderful. That Haman announces his own punishment, if you will, that he would have to walk around and lead Mordecai around and praise Mordecai. And, of course, we're not done with God orchestrating the details of Haman's demise, are we? We're going to have some more fun with that next time. Questions, comments, thoughts? I'm not sufficient on my own, so bring up your thoughts and comments. You probably have some things I'm not thinking of. Oh, he, he might have been putting his life at risk. I don't know. I mean, there are probably people, and I would put Haman at the top of this list, that had much more ready access to the king, but the same rules, I would think, still applied. He hadn't been called for, but he probably could plan on when important people show up, the king, well, what's up? Come on in. Tell me what's going on. So I think that would be the limit to it. But is there an outer and inner court? I have absolutely no idea. The only thing that's mentioned here is the court. And I don't know what the layout of the, of the uh, winter palace in Susa was. But that, I'm, it's a good question. I mean, it's going on there. Any other comments? Was Esther, or, or was Haman aware of Esther's relationship to Mordecai I don't know. Um, I, I tend to think not. Um, because if Mordecai was known as a Jew and Mordecai tells Esther don't reveal your heritage as a Jew I mean if everybody already knew what would be the point so I, I think not I think the people in the palace generally didn't I mean some knew because she had her go-between that was her own servant 
back when she and Mordecai were working out going before the king and Mordecai was in sackcloth and ashes and couldn't do that directly with her. So some knew, at least knew they were connected in some way, may not have known it was through bloodline. So great question, but uh, I don't have more information to add. Anybody else? Well, I allowed some time at the end to, to get to that because that was really important, but didn't quite use it all. But let me close with a word of prayer, and we'll, we'll enjoy another turn of events next week. Father, as we look at the scriptures, we see the level of detail you put into your governance of history and um, what happens so that you are glorified. Um, Lord, you have protected your remnant of Jews throughout the times that even when they were grossly disobedient. You've always saved some for yourself and we thank you for that. We thank you for the heritage that carries forward into our own salvation through Jesus the Christ. Now Lord, remind us that we are grafted in, that we have become part of the people of promise through faith in Christ, through your calling. Lord, as we continue to look at this book of Esther, show us that you work in the most smallest detail, just as you did in creation, while at the same time you are keeping the big picture firmly under control. Because, Lord, even in these days, in your mind, you have already looked forward to Christ, you've already looked forward to us, and you've already established what will be before it is. Thank you for that, Lord. This is a, a, a fun book, if that's the right way of saying it. It's a book that uh, we get to see uh, some twists and turns that only you could do, and they are gratifying to read. Lord, take us to truth and keep us from error. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.